This is Ingredient Insiders. I'm John Magazzino. And I'm Andrea Parkins. On each episode of Ingredient Insiders, we will be talking with chefs and authors about their favorite ingredients. We'll then talk to the producers of those ingredients to talk about how they're made, the history, and why chefs love using them in their kitchens. Morel mushrooms, Andrea. Your favorite, John. How did you know that? Because I know you. Because I'm always talking about how much I love morel yes, mushrooms. Yes, you like them better than... Truffles. I love them. Yeah, better I than lo- truffles. I will say this. This is a big statement. Yep, and we're ready. I love morel mushrooms. <laughs> um, the, if given the choice of like having any kind of sauce with food, mm-hmm. be it veal, chicken, steak, beef, and even seafood, I would choose a creamy morel sauce over any other sauce. Yum. Does that sound weird? I mean... A little, but I, I get it. I think that they're very special and they are, they're craveable. Yeah. My history of morels, because growing up in metropolitan New York is not really a, morel a mecca. center. Yeah. It's not really the epicenter for right. wild morels. So morels, for those of you listening that don't know what a morel is, a morel is a wild mushroom that grows in forests, predominantly in the Pacific Northwest of the United States and other parts of the Midwest of the United States. It's worldwide in its production as as far as where it grows wild. It's very big in uh, France along the Swiss border in the Jura region. They are found in South America. They, I believe, are found in Asia. Don't quote me on that, but I believe there are Chinese morels. Turkey, big producer of morels, believe it or not. Probably the biggest production in the world is the Pacific Northwest of North America, Canada, Oregon, Washington, even California. They're very widely available. They're called a conica mushroom because they're kind of cone-shaped and they have a very unique like honeycomb pattern. And they are truly wild. Yeah. If you don't know morel mushrooms, Google it and look at a picture of it. Mm -hmm. I used to live in New York City just after getting out of college and there's a market in New York called Fairway. Mm-hmm. And Fairway, you know, huge supermarket, but, you know, kind of There's specialty. still a market called Fairway. Oh, yeah, and they're still City. around. Yep. They used to, in the springtime, believe it or not, used to get the most beautiful morel mushrooms. I don't think they were abundantly popular and they weren't terribly expensive. You know, maybe they were $9, $10 a pound, whatever it was. I used to buy them. Maybe I probably like bought them out of curiosity at first, or maybe I'd had them at a restaurant. I don't remember and enjoyed them. But I found this very simple recipe to making them, which I still use to this day. I find that once you make this simple sauce with morel mushrooms, you can add it to any kind of protein you like. You can have it straight up, or you can even basically blend this into a quiche or have it with your eggs. Mm. The flavor is so amazing. Do you feel like that? about all mushrooms like i no no i do love a lot of different yeah. types of mushrooms do you hate any or like dislike mu- no. okay like i love mushrooms like i don't think I've i met love a mushrooms and i love porcini yeah. and i love i even love like white button mushrooms yeah and cremini's i like them all yeah me too but some have very unique flavors and so you know that are very different i love hand of the woods like mm-hmm. my taki i love those when they get crispy and oh, i love them when so they're good. roasted but morels to me they have a place in your particularly heart particularly with cream the cream kind of transports that flavor. I think they are, again, it's number one to me of anything I can eat. I mean, this isn't a morel story, but for me, it's kind of part of my culinary journey. You know, I grew up, my mom, she's not a great cook. Yeah. And she didn't, 
um, really cook a lot. It was more like preparing foods for yeah. us. But she used to buy like jarred mushrooms. That's kind of like where, where I started tinkering in the kitchen. Marinated or just what kind of... So I would mean? marinate them. Yeah. She would buy just like regular. They were like not very good. Like button mushrooms in water. Correct. Got it. So then I would take olive oil and vinegar and different dried herbs and spices from the kitchen. And I would put it all back in the jar and kind of like let it marinate for a few days. And we would eat it as like a side dish. Delicious. Yeah. And it's like, for me, that's how I got excited about cooking. And I remember I added paprika once and didn't turn out very well. Well, I remember when like probably up until the age of like 18, 19, even I was freaked out by mushrooms. You know, if you showed me like a stuffed, beautiful, you know, mushroom with crab or some kind of filling, I stayed a mile away. I'm like, I don't know. Why? I don't know. They just seem weird to me. But I think that they're much more widely accepted now. Yes. It's like fungus, maybe. Yes, exactly. Right? It was like this, yeah, there was kind of a strangeness. Mm-hmm. They were not of this, you know. They didn't grow like a vegetable. Right. And now, I mean, there's like Netflix specials, like Fantastic Fungi. And yeah. Michael Pollan just came out with, you know, his psychedelics special on Netflix as well. Like we're learning that mushrooms are and fungus, they're powerful. Yeah. So Morels, this is going to be a great episode. We are James going to be Kent. talking with, yes, James Kent, amazing chef, really kind of made a name for himself working for Daniel Hum at 11 Madison mm-hmm. Park. And now he has Crown Shy and Saga in the in the financial district in Two New York City. Two of the City. most beautiful restaurants in Stunning. New York City. And he is really killing it there. He's doing super well. And this is something that, that, that I learned from Jean-Georges. Vin John, yellow wine from the Jura, is the only way I cook morels. And it, it was a thing that, that, that we did with him, and it's just delicious. We'll also be speaking with Johnny Anderson from Foods in Season, He's an actual uh, forager, second generation. His father actually started foraging morels uh, up in the Pacific Northwest. And we're going to learn all about the foraging process, the drying process. So they're a wild forage and seasonal, very seasonal, uh, depending on you know where you live or where you can find them. So pretty much anywhere in the northern hemisphere, you can find these wild morels. Can't wait to talk all about morels. Oh, my God. This episode is in partnership with The Chef's Warehouse and produced by Hey Now Media. We've done a lot of podcasts in some cool places, but there's hands down, we are in the most spectacular setting right now. We are on the 63rd floor at Saga Restaurant in New York City, Above Crown Shy. Crown Shy is down, what is it, 70 Pine? Is that 70 the address? Pine. 70 Pine, mm-hmm. Financial District of New York. If you haven't been here, this is a restaurant that you must come to. Crown Shy, incredible. And then much newer, but the view is stunning. This is the my favorite Saga. podcast location. It's not a bad it's not a bad day. And we've got Chef James Kent here, the, the mastermind behind all of this. Congratulations. I'm saying that you've been open for years, but I haven't seen you in a little while. And talk to me about this restaurant. How did this come to be? Yeah, well, uh, it's good to have you guys up here. Um, John, welcome back. Good to have both of you guys here. You know, I've cooked in New York my whole life, and I was working at a high level forever and ever. You know, restaurants are really personal. Food is really personal. And I was cooking someone else's food. And I was like, I need to figure out what's important for me. So I was like, what's out there? You know, and, and I met our partners here 
they're lovely. It's a young family. They, you know, they're they're really smart and great people and incredibly supportive. I've been on this project for five years. Crownshy opened three years ago, a year before COVID, like to the day, like literally was like March 15th opened 2020, March 15th closed. And Saga was meant to open that year, literally like March 15th of 2020. We had onboarded a bunch of the team. We, you know, like had orientation. And we paused because the world paused. Did a lot of running in place during COVID. And we learned a lot and we evolved. We are definitely a better restaurant. We are better restaurants than we would have been if we didn't have that time. How is Saga different from Crown Chai? Crown is, like, we're not trying to challenge people at Crown Chai. We're just trying to do delicious food. And the vibe is fun. The music is loud. You know, it's, I had dinner last night with my with my mom and and wife and kids and it was just bumping it just feels like a fun place to hang you know um the the cocktails are, are delicious the food is simple and delicious like you know that you're going to get a delicious meal and have fun and you're not like investing too much time and effort you know you can get a drink and run out the door you know here it's more of an experience you know you like come to the financial district you wait for this elevator you're like brought into this beautiful space you know, they're like reveal when the doors open. You're like, wow, look at this place. It's There's crazy. some drama. I yeah. can and only imagine what the lights of New York City twinkling at yeah. night from high up here. Yeah, it's a beautiful, yeah. you know, it's the bones of this place is really incredible. You know, you're kind of in our hands. There's no menu. We cook for you. There's a few decisions, but, but you know, for the most part, you're, you're like coming to our home and we're cooking you dinner. Are you finding a lot of people coming here for special occasions? Is, are there like are marriage proposals happening yeah, here? Yeah, we have stuff? weddings up here. You know, New York City's back. All the, all the missed opportunities and all the relationships that were made. You're like, all right, I've been with you this long. I might as well get married. You know, like <laughs> you're like we survived COVID. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we could survive anything. Yep. And then, and then you know, other kind of like younger relationships that that now have an opportunity to like evolve. You know, now we are here and we have the, these amazing restaurants and made it through covid when lots of restaurants changed and closed and evolved and you know like we are just getting better and this is the beginning for us and and i'm excited to see how far we can take it not just being a great like kitchen or great food you know i want to be a great operator owner you know um leader i think all these things are super important love it yeah so this is ingredient insiders yeah. and you wanted to talk about morels yes Morel mushrooms. Which is near and dear to John's heart. He loves morels. Well, I love morel mushrooms more than I love truffles. I just, the flavor of a morel to me is as good as it gets. Describe it, John. I'm going to let James describe right. it. Either well, of you. Well, I think for me, mushrooms are amazing. They are meaty and delicious and savory and umami-ish and all these, all these things. And morels are, I think the spring is really special. Because you just go through this dormant like life cycle, and then the first few things that pop up are morels and asparagus, and it's like it's just the perfect combination. They Those say two it happens things, overnight. It happens overnight. No, yeah. and, and then so we like, and this is something that 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 I learned from Jean Georges. Vinjon, yellow wine from the Jura, is the only way I cook morels, and it, it was a thing that, that that we did with him, and it's just delicious. And Vinjon is super expensive. It's like fifty dollars a bottle, so we like have to be conscious about it. But a little bit of raw Vinjon and morels and butter and like a little bit of cream is just like makes me happy. But that, I want to hear that recipe exactly. Because <laughs> I was gonna go home. I now. cook a lot of morels. I'm lucky yeah. that if I can get a case and talk to me exactly how you make that dish. 
So we will saute the morels, uh, shallot, garlic, and then deglaze with vengeance and butter and brown the butter a little bit. Then deglaze with, with vengeance and then basically add cream to it. Like just finish it with cream? And reduce it with cream. And then always with raw vengeance, like a la minute. And you can use sherry because vengeance is $50 a bottle. It's expensive. So sometimes we like cook with the sherry and we finish with the raw vengeance. So you have like the alcohol. It's like, um, and something that we did at, at JG's, we would like fold in hollandaise to it. And like, we'll do it through like, um, like an ISI canister. We'll add like, you know, kind of that volume with ISI uh, canister to add like kind of something similar to a hollandaise. The thing I love about morels and that sauce you just, just described, I've never made it exactly like that, is that once you have a creamy morel sauce, there I don't think there's anything that doesn't go delicious with it. Yeah. Like anything. And we and morels and pasta, it's just delicious. You know, Paul Bocuse's famous dish with his poulet de breast with with like you know i think it may be vengeance i think it's probably where jg got it from all, all roads lead to paul bocuse you know right. it's like and um i love that and that's the, that should be the name of book all roads, all roads lead, lead to that, paul is a, that is that is a good name yes all, just all, think, all roads have you lead said to, that before or is that no no i'd normally say all roads lead to james kent okay <laughs> that's the that's the real name of the book no i think you know well we had this conversation we were with danielle earlier this week mm -hmm. And while we were talking, we had this idea, and I've and I always am thinking about this this like family tree of great chefs or the roots of a tree. And to your point, you if you go one generation earlier than Bocuse, there are like a couple of chefs in Lyon that were the mentors to Bocuse mm -hmm. and a couple of other people. Yeah, La Pyramid, Ferdinand Point. Exactly, like Ferdinand Point, La Pyramid. And I think Dumas, Alexander Dumas, there's there's three chefs. And then if you put those, you know, the branches or you the fingers like the family tree coming guy. out of that, mm -hmm. it's incredible yep. that then you have like Alan Chappelle and you have Michelle Girard and you have um, all of these people. And then if you go the layer below that, then you have Alan Ducasse and Daniel Baloud. Yeah. And then, and, and it's crazy. Joel Robichon, and Robichon. All, all, like the Jean Georges. Uh, yeah. You know, Bernard Loiseau. And then all, of, and then from that, then you have that next generation, and that is Daniel Balud. No, no, no. Oh. The, then you have these guys who came to America, and then it's it's really wild. And then the roads eventually leave to they, Daniel. And then they go. To plug you yeah, games. it's he's like the nope. you know Route Six A, and I'm just kidding. There was oh. a um, there was uh, it was like either Time Out or like New York Magazine article from the 2000s, I think, or maybe like late. It was 2000s because I was like in restaurants. And it had the family tree from restaurants and it was like Boulay showed the family tree yeah. of like the levels of the people that, that like, I feel like I've seen this. Yes. And and it just needs to be done again. Yes. Yeah. So, someone needs time. to do it again. John maybe James, maybe James and I'll draw it up. Let's do it. You should. And all roads do lead to James. <laughs> James so anyhow, let's, so, but, but what do morels taste like? I think we should describe like the actual mushroom itself. For me, it's, it, it's tough because morels take on the flavor that you that you that you add to it, like the vengeance and the garlic and the shallots and the cream. And it's like any real mushroom, like it absorbs the flavor. But for me, it's really like 
it feels like the forest, which is like a terrible, like a hard way to explain. No, like I things, love yeah. I love that because as you were saying it, I was thinking of the answer. Like how do you, it feels like. I was going to say earthy, but I don't like to say things yeah. are earthy because earthy is like dirt yeah. and it doesn't taste like dirt. I think it is the forest. And think of like, and I, and, and this is, this is a terrible thing. It's kind of like, like a human, like walking through after it rained, the aromas of mm-hmm. the forest. It like, it like encapsulates that. I think, I think that's, that's a perfect. I think know, that is a beautiful description. Like you wake up in the morning, you go for a run yes. through, through the woods. You get, you know, like that's kind of what it is. It's like. And there's also something beautiful texturally about yeah. morels when they're fresh. Yeah. They have a little bit of chew to them. Yeah. A little meaty. And they're a little meaty. Mm-hmm. And they're some just, of them are enormous. Yeah. What's your, like, what, what are your, yeah, they can be enormous. They can be like. You can stuff them. What's your? Huge. What are your morale memories from working at these kitchens? Well, I think the the cleaning them probably. Yeah, I think for me the eating eating part is as the things and 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 morels are not a hard mushroom to clean, like black trumpet mushrooms. Worst mushroom to clean. Terrible. Nooks and crannies. The worst bugs and twigs and things and stuff like that. It's just so much work. Morels, I think, are are easy money. And and for me, it's like the morel memory of like. Like the Jean George, like him, like teaching me, like he taught me how to do that. You know, like yeah. when, when I when I worked at Jean George, he had twenty restaurants, and there were like ten things that he came and showed me exactly how to do. And this was one of them. Um, so that's like the memory that that comes back. I love it. And literally, like that's how that's how we cook morels. And have you ever done anything where you stuff them? Andrew was talking about the big morels, where you know put a yeah, mousse in there we, or anything. We we like. Um, stuffed them with sweetbread like a sweetbread farce for the saga menu when we first worked on the saga menu up here because we intended to open in spring and then you know opening restaurants always push um but yeah stuff stuff morels delicious i think we should talk a little bit about um that morels are wild they can be cultivated but they're it kind of makes them a little bit more special i think yeah versus well to, some of yeah to yeah. james's point about it it's spring yeah mm-hmm. it's you know it really speaks to the season and, um and they are not cheap you know no. that like they are an expensive mushroom um we're paying like 50 bucks a pound yeah 50 yeah. and and that may be like inflation post-covid price also but they're, they're like not an inexpensive ingredient when you get a case of morels what's a beautiful morel look like what is a good morel how do people know if they're going to their local market? And you can find morels at your organic produce market. Yeah, hopefully. Or if you're lucky, if you're in the Pacific Northwest, you can go to your farmer's market during the spring and you're going to see plenty of morels. But if you're you know, in, in a market, what are you looking for for a morel? For me, I like like whole pieces as intact as possible. The moisture level is important. You don't want it too dry. You don't want it too wet. Mold, no mold. Mold is the enemy of, of anything you want to eat other than like koji and like intentional mold. Um, Is there a smell or no? Uh, no, not really. Okay. I think it's more about it's more about the moisture. And and you see as mushrooms get older, they they break up and they like to dry and shrivel. They, get, they get mushy yeah. or they mushy, get dry. They get mushy, a little bit of both, but yeah. you can tell. All right, so you're looking for something that's whole, not too wet and not too dry, and certainly not mushy or moldy. Shouldn't have any real aroma to it. Mm-hmm. And cleaning it, how do you clean them? Uh, cleaning it is, you need to really clean them super well. So we just trim the bottom, uh, like a little like- A little like white little tough ring. bottom there, yeah. yeah. And then we soak them in water. 
and then lift the mushrooms out of the water so the sand and any sediment falls. You put that in fresh water. You rinse it again. The previous bin, you dump the water out, put fresh water in, and you kind of go like back and forth. So it's probably like five or six times. And I always like take a morel and chew it raw, like in the back of my teeth as like, and try to get as much like- The grittiness, yeah. make sure there's no grit. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, like I don't wait to cook, I just put it back and like gnaw on it. And if there's any sand, we keep doing it. Because the worst thing you want to do is you eat a mushroom with sand. Morels, in particular, you have to cook. You can't eat morels raw. You yeah. can't. Sh- I don't can know. You? People say it's poisonous. I don't know. I've no, I'm not even saying for poisonous, but like I think you, you don't like you it's can shave it. Yeah, 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 yeah. You want to yeah. cook your morels. It's not pleasant. Where do you source your morels from? Like to be honest, I have a purchaser that kind of runs the gambit and try and finds them. Um, but we get them from a ton of different vendors. For the most part, they come from like. Pacific West Coast, like North, you know, yep. like um, Oregon. Oregon, Portland, also from Washington. like from like Israel, like there's different places where where like morels come from. Um, but like you know, we would get it from mushrooms and more. It was, was always a really good mushroom. mushroom Hans guy. Johansson. I don't know yeah. where Hans Johansson is anymore. I think he's still there. I don't know. I, I and and I was a purchaser at Love Madison Park for a year, so I was like, this is when 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 we were sure. Together. I used to call I was, James. He he answered the phone yeah, every day. I James and I probably spoke do you twice know the a number? day. I think. <sighs> Come on, John. I do, no, I do not remember the phone number. He remembers like, the phone numbers. Yeah. All these I have places. a lot of, but I bet you James and I probably spoke twice a day 100%. for an entire year. Yeah. You, what, would you want some morels? Yeah, I got morels. Okay, yeah, what's the price? Here's the price. Then t- three hours later, John, the morels just sent me. We got to pick them up. We need a better morel. Because that's you're talking to a three-star Michelin yeah, restaurant. We, you know, we, we need High to- High standards. We need to be really, we need to scrutinize the food. But always with respect. Oh, what would I do? Oh, yeah, I'd go pick them up. I'd put them in the back of my car and I'd go down and see James and pick up the ones what that weren't so have? nice. What did you have? You have like a Subaru or something? <laughs> <laughs> I had, I don't remember at that time- I've Probably definitely, an I've old Audi. An Audi station wagon? I had an Audi Q5 wagon. That's what it was. That's what yeah, I was thinking. I was thinking like a Subaru wagon. I had a wagon. Yeah, I had a lot of cars. I used to put a lot of boxes in the back of the car. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, it's part of being a food salesman. It yes. is part, part of being. Um, but always loved what I did. And always, and the, you know, the interesting thing is I always respected, and maybe that's why James and I became friends, is I always respected a chef who said, you know what, you sent me something, it's not perfect. I knew that they were striving for for perfection and that I had to deliver something that was good enough for them. Yeah, so you know the meal is going to be spectacular. I was always, yeah, I guess I always wanted their, like the affirmation from the Mm -hmm. chef saying, I got a, I got a show to put on tonight. You better make sure, you know, you you do me right. And, And I did that respectfully. Now, if someone was, you know, calling me and saying, hey, you sent me morels and I knew they were really good and they had ordered from somebody else and maybe got them for a nickel cheaper. That would piss me off. And I never connected with those kind of people uh, for good reason. Yeah, but the thing is, too, it's it's. There's lots of people like that and those people don't make it. Yep. You're 100 like, percent correct. Can those, you say that again? There's a lot that goes into this business. One of the reasons why I'm successful because over the past 20 years, I've like made good decisions and treated people well, you know? So like, there's a lot of goodwill. People out there are like, yo, I want James Kent to succeed. I'm gonna do whatever it takes to help him because I don't burn bridges and I don't treat people like shit. And I like, you know, from all walks of life, from my team. And I made mistakes as a young sous chef. You know, I wasn't always perfect, but. It's so interesting that you're saying this because I have never really spoken to anybody about that, but I, look back at, I'm very lucky to have the relationships I have with chefs like yourself, 
with an Andrew Carmelini or a Daniel Balud or Michael White or whoever, whomever it may be, or Thomas Keller. And they're super successful. It's been years and years of friendship and a business relationship. And then to your point, there are these other chefs that were popular for a time, but are no longer part of the the relevant chef world. And those were the guys that were shitty to me and probably to a lot of people who worked for them inside the kitchen and outside the kitchen. And you need to have people, you know, it's it's a tough job and people need to come in every day and feel inspired. And when I worked for Daniel Hum, I was super inspired. And I'm like, what, I need to work 82 hours today? Whatever it takes, you know? And it wasn't the money, you know, I got paid 10 bucks an hour. Like, I'm like, yo, I believe in the vision. I believe in this person. He's incredible, you know? So I think for me, it's a balance. And like, I'm not successful because I'm the smartest or the best cook or, or you know, like the most creative. I'm like successful because like people believe in me and, and I'm good at all those other things. But like what I do well is, is like, nurture and teach and inspire it sounds like mutual respect like i think that's kind of the underlying thing you know you respect your staff you respect your purveyors and then you build relationships upon that and then you take care of each other yeah yo i'm chef james kent saga overstory crown shy and you are listening to ingredient inside all right, I want to step back because your grandmother took you to Boulay when you were 13. Mm-hmm. And then by the time you were 15, you were working in that kitchen. Mm-hmm. But he lived in your building, right? Yeah, he moved into my building. And he was a stud. He was like my, my, my hero. I'd be like sitting on my stoop. And he would roll up on a Harley with like a supermodel. I'm like, yo, this guy's, this is like what I want to do. We went to Boulay and had this amazing magical experience. It's one of these memories, like I'll never forget it. I don't like remember everything. I remember several moments and the feel. You know, like for me, like the way that things make make you feel, you're never going to forget. Like the feelings that you come in, like when you walk in that room and the warmth of that room and the apples and the smell. And those are things that you like are never going to forget. How did you actually get hired at 15? Did you knock on the door? Did you go to the kitchen or did you see him in your building and say, hey, like basically I knocked on his his apartment. So I I worked at a restaurant called Pietra Santa in Hell's Kitchen, which was like where I worked from 12 to 18. I worked there from junior high school till I graduated, went to college. Um, I hope my children are listening to this. Yeah, go to work. Get, get to work. 12 years old. Work work, uh, work ethic is important. Um, so I was a busboy and I worked there on, a, on su- I worked Sunday brunch and I would like sneak into the kitchen and learn how to roll pasta and whatever, like, you know, eat food. I was a little fat kid. And then Boulay moved in, into, our, into our building and I knocked on his door, but I was in that kitchen and, you know, I like just spent one summer there and, and I could have gone back, but I was a young kid and I like, you know, I moved on to other things. But, it was it was this beautiful kitchen and it and it was something that i realized was really important to me and it's funny when my mom moved out of our childhood home my whatever uh, our place in the village she found a boule matchbook that i crossed his name out and like wrote my name and wow. and, and she framed it and and i and i had it up, uh, on in my office at the nomad it was like the only thing so at that moment, it was like something that, that I, you kind of knew that's what you wanted to do from an early age. I kind of saw knew. that, and vision. I fell into it a little bit. And like later on in life, I like went to school for marketing, and I'm like, this sucks. And like realized I wanted to cook, so I was able to pivot. Thankfully, at a young age. Um, Did you go to Johnson and Wales? Yeah, I went to Johnson and Wales, but I went there for marketing. Oh, I, I switched after my my two year degree. So you got in the culinary program there, yeah. and I skipped a year because I was in the industry, and I did a summer program to get ahead, and you know, and then I really started digging deep and started cooking. So where have you graduated from Johnson and Wales? Then where do you end up? Um, so I went to Babo, and it was two thousand and one, two two thousand two, 
And it was like one of the hottest restaurants in New York. And it's funny, my mother was like, I think I got a guy at this restaurant called Babo and sent my resume. And I went in there and like, yo, and Mario was like, James Kent's a good name, you're in. And literally like hired me. It was just perfect timing because that, that restaurant was so small, so hard to get into. They just needed someone. And he was like, can you start tomorrow? And so I started the next day. Wow. And then like two months later, my mom was like, hey, I made a mistake. It was Il Buco. It was like a wrong restaurant. <laughs> so she sent my resume. That is hilarious. Your mom sending your resumes out. To Babo, think no, because she said she had she knew a friend. Oh, okay. She's like, oh, I have a GM. I know the GM. He's a friend of mine. I'm going to send it. Starts with a B. So sent it Italian. To yeah. Could yeah. be Obuco. Could be Babo. Babo. And so that's a great. So that's a great story in of itself. So Babo at that time, as you said, it couldn't have been a hotter restaurant. Who's in the kitchen? Andy, not sir. Andy was in the kitchen. Liz Benno, maybe. No, it not was uh, Tony Liu. Gina De Palma. Gina, yeah. Um, Mario Carbone had just, he's Mar just. Yeah. Nick Frank, Anderer. Nick Frank Anderer, yeah. yeah. All these guys. Yeah. A very, a legendary kitchen. How yeah. long were you there for? I was there for two years. Good run. And, you know, for me, I spent mo two years was kind of the length of time that you need in a restaurant. Because you're like, at that point, you're like at the top. And it's time to go. It's time to learn something And then else. you went to JG? And then we went to Jean-Georges. And I was there for another two years. And then Gordon Ramsay was coming to New York. And I trailed at Per Se and Benno offered me a job at Per Se and Gordon Ramsay offered me a job at Gordon Ramsay. And I just liked the idea of like opening a new restaurant. And I was there for six months. It was like culture sucked. Food was fine. The London Hotel. The London. Like yeah. Marcus Glocker and I were like partners. All these moments in my career made me who I am, introduced me to people, gave me skills and tools that I'm using today. So like I appreciate all the moments. That led me to 11 Madison Park because I went to Per Se. Maybe I would have been fired in a week. Maybe I would have stayed there for 10 years. Who knows? But I was at Gordon Ramsay for six months and and... Daniel just came to New York. He was probably in New York less than a year. But uh, Tony Liu was like, hey, this is the guy. You need to go work for this dude. He's the future. And I walked into 11 Madison Park. And it's funny. So my grandfather is Charles Mingus. And there was a Charles Mingus tune playing Goodbye Pork Pie Hat. Wait, time out. Your yeah, yeah. grandfather's Charles Mingus? Well, my grandmother Mingus, is Mingus, Sue Mingus. Mingus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Are you serious? Yeah, so my grandmother. I have records. Char yeah. Well, he's, you know. He's the guy. A legend. I, so, I had no idea. Okay, so I walked going. into EMP and they were playing Goodbye Pork Pie Hat, which is like his most famous song. And I walked in. I'm like, yo, this is like, this, there's something here. And, and I told the manager, I'm like, yo, it's my grandfather's song. And he was like. It was a sign. Sweet. And then um, not knowing that that, that that restaurant would like shape my my who I am as a person and as a chef. You know, but I walked in there and it was like this, like, this amazing moment. And Daniel was like, we're going to get four stars. And then he paid me 10 bucks an hour. And like, you know, it, it wasn't for money. I didn't even care. I was like, I don't care. I'm like, and, and he offered me like 10, 50 or 10 bucks. And knowing him now, like I knew that, that he wasn't proud of that number. And I was like a seasoned cook and worked in New York my whole life. Uh, but a business is a business. But for me, I was, I, I like, didn't even question it. I'm like, sign me up. So I came in as the meat roast. A week later, they promoted me to sous chef. And 10 years later, you know, Boca store, all the accolades, you know, Nomad. 11 uh, Madison Park, to me, in the Daniel Hum era, th from the moment he walked in the doors there, I remember going there very early on. It, a late night dinner, Shea Gallant dragged me along to go have a drink, and we ended up sitting and having dinner uh, with another friend of mine. And the dishes started coming out, and I was like, what is going on here? This is incredible. 11 Madison Park had been open for years with mm -hmm. with uh, Carrie Heffernan, which you know, was a very good restaurant. Mm -hmm. But when Daniel Hum took over, it became a totally different place. And I remember dishes coming out and me scratching my head going, God, I've seen like this is very familiar to me. And I'd lived in Switzerland for a couple of years when I was in school. And 
and had been very lucky to eat at a couple of restaurants. And then Daniel came out to say hello to us and nobody really knew who he was. He'd been in San Francisco for a bit, I think. Mm -hmm. And I I said to him, like, where did you grow up? Because there's something like clicking here for me. And as soon as he said Switzerland, I was like, ah, did you, you know, Gerard Rabe like this, like, and he's like, yeah, I used to work. I was like, ah, and it all came together. And I remember I went back six months later and had a dinner with one of our purveyors, who's a olive oil maker in Italy, a Ter Bormane. And this was probably the best meal I ever had in my life when you guys were doing that, this stuff. And that run that you had there was as significant a New York City dining moment in history as there is. I mean, it was as good as any restaurant in the world. I was very lucky to like walk in at that, at that moment. And I was prepared because that kitchen, it was a pirate ship. It was crazy. It was one of the toughest restaurants I've ever worked in. Within that, I, th- I thrived. And people were like quitting and getting fired and walking out of service because like standards were like ridiculous. You needed that New York City tough graffiti kid yeah, yeah. attitude. It's not for everybody. To, it's not for everyone. And and like we were an overachieving restaurant. No one knew who Daniel Hum was. Something in him was, was really inspiring. From there, you went to the Nomad. So I was at EMP for seven or eight years. Yep. I, did, I did the book store during that time. Um, I went to Nomad for three years. You know, that really helped me because I'd like managed a huge business, helped me reach out. And I did a lot of amazing dinners with different amazing chefs around the world. These restaurants are huge. The businesses are huge. The responsibilities are huge. So so running these restaurants, Love Madison Park, also like a huge business, huge restaurant. Nomad, like 10 different things happening, events and magic shows and masquerades and bars here. And, you know, like big all, operation, all these things. So, you know, it prepared me to walk into a room with my partners here and say, hey, this is the P&L that I ran for the past 10 years. And these these are the businesses that we've made. Were you always thinking like of your own place? Like, did, was that in your mind? Like, I gotta have my own place. I wanna get, you know, at some point I'm gonna get out. Is that always out. the angle? I'm I think get every Cause we have, chef- a lot of, we have a lot of young chefs who listen to this podcast. A lot of them have aspirations of wanting their own restaurant. What's that turning point or when, was it always in your mind that you wanted your own place? I think every chef's dream is to run your own restaurant, own your own restaurant. It was a 100% something that was a conscious want. It's a little bit of luck and a lot of hard work. So you feel like everything kind of was like right place, right time for you? 100%. And, awesome. and like the right skill level, because I w- walked into EMP, 20 people before me got fired, 20 people before them like didn't make it. And I walked in there and and could handle the, the stress and, and the situation because I was prepared for it, you know? So it's like that preparation is important because right place, right time, doesn't matter. I guess right time, but like right place, right time. And then also you but need then to be prepared. kind of prepared you for well, Nomad. Yeah, hundred percent. Well, yeah. never mind the fact that you had two years at Babo. That's a small, hot, yeah. testy kitchen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So just putting your chops in there was something. Yeah. And then go 10 years with a serious, for lack of a better adjective, Swiss chef, you know, timing and luck and all that thing. Yeah, you you put your time in. Yeah. And then so we, you know, now we are here and we have the, these amazing restaurants and made it through COVID when lots of restaurants changed and closed and evolved. And, you know, like we we are just getting better. And this is the beginning for us. And, and I'm excited to see how far we can take it um in in all different respects not just being a great like kitchen or great food you know i want to be a great operator owner you know um leader i think all these things are super important james this has been amazing it's been a lot of fun it's like a reunion of sorts 
Congratulations. I mean, Thanks, I, guys. I, this, this is spectacular. Play, I appreciate yeah, it. Thanks. Truly. We got to come here, Andrea, on date night when the uh, you're lights are Taking me on a up. date, John? Well, no, I'm just saying on date night, we can bring our significant <laughs> others. All right, fine. Double date night. <laughs> but uh, can't say enough about uh, how impressed I am and how happy we are for all your success. So great to spend time with you. Morel mushrooms. I love them. Um, I feel like I got to come eat some. Are morels on the menu here now? Yeah, yeah of course. What, what, what do we got on the menu? Oh, we have it in a tagine. So uh, we, we do like an asparagus and morel tagine uh, with dry aged duck, with, with um, harissa and like a spice honey, um, with a North African flatbread, with salmon bread. We have a, a preserved um, uh, lemon condiment with a labne yogurt. Um, and then we have a falafel. So this is like the super communal dish where we'd like drop a tagine on the table. Nice. And we have, and we do a, um, chickpea uh, falafel and a hummus with this shaved asparagus. And there's also chickpeas in the tagine. So it's like a super springy, you know, like communal dish. Our entrees are like, and then our, our we, have two, we, we have two choices. We have a lamb dish, which is like, like with lamb buns, a bunch of other things, you know, like. Sounds awesome. Like and the, there's a lot of wild mushrooms in Morocco. We didn't even talk about that, but that's for another episode. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you, James. What a Thanks, pleasure. Guys. Hi, I'm Johnny Anderson with Foods and Season. You're listening to Ingredients Insider. We are on the line with Johnny Anderson of Foods in Season. He is the amazing purveyor that we work with for our dried morels at Chef's Warehouse. Mm-hmm. And so we're excited to talk to you, Johnny. Yeah, thanks for having uh, having me on. We're uh, Foods in Season. We're we're based out of uh, Portland, Oregon. Um, we're a food distribution company out here on the West Coast. Our main offerings uh, are wild wild foods, whether that be um, wild foraged products or or fished items out of Pacific Northwest. Actually, Morels kind of started the whole thing back in the early seventies. Uh, with my father, a weekend uh, mushroom forager in a small uh, logging community, you know, about two hours east of uh, Portland, Oregon. So he'd go out on the weekends and his time off and forage morels, take them into Portland and peddle them to uh, different restaurants. And this was, you know, almost 40 years ago. So a deep history here with us at Boots and Season, it kind of just started the whole thing. So Johnny, talk to us about morels. How are they foraged? They can't be, they're not cultivated, right? They're 100% wild? That's right. Yeah. So they're a wild forage and seasonal, very seasonal, uh, depending on, you know, where you live or where you can find them. So pretty much anywhere in the Northern hemisphere, you can find these wild morels different times of the year. They're a springtime item. Um, so they grow all throughout Europe um, and even in like India, Pakistan, anywhere up to a couple of weeks here and there, depending on the region you're in. So in uh, North America, they're predominantly the largest and biggest season is here on the, um, the West Coast starting in uh, March. And we, we run all the way until like July with mushrooms. We forage them in um, California starting there and then moving into Oregon, Washington, Idaho, and Montana and the higher elevations as, you know, 
temperatures warm up in uh, the higher elevations, then we kind of just follow the crops around. In the Midwest, there are quite a few different areas you can find morels. Minnesota, Michigan, Wisconsin, and those folks over there have a real passion for their morel mushrooms. You know, they they go crazy for them. Uh, they have morel festivals, hunting competitions, uh, fundraisers, auctions, all kinds of uh morel fries <laughs> so it's a real uh, cultural thing there in the midwest for folks and they just go crazy for the morels i always think you know morels such a big part of french cuisine in the spring really big in germany and, and other parts of western europe but the u.s has a huge history of you know love for morels i know you know friends in colorado and friends even in nebraska that yep. go hunting for morels and they, they absolutely love them um and they prepare them in their own kind of special way versus you know how how we might find them in you know france or other parts of europe talk to us a little bit about absolutely the yeah the different types of morels because sometimes we see blonde morels or these burn morels that come from forest fire areas yeah they're very special very very unique and distinctive they are very easily to identify once you get an eye form. They're not that difficult to identify. And um, yeah, they come in all different sizes, you know, small as uh, your thumbnail when they first start. And some of them, you know, especially in the Midwest, they get these blonde morels that can get huge, like a pound and a half or two pounds. You know, they're real different regions have their own kind of special qualities as far as size and color and but they all pretty much have the same flavor profile what's the relationship between forest fires and morels so out here on the west coast we get unfortunately wildfires every summer so in the following year there is a pretty good fruiting of morels in these uh burn scars a forest fire will come through and and burn the tops of the trees right pretty much kill the trees but then underneath the soil underneath the earth the tree's roots are still alive. So they're trying to fend off the uh, fungus and mycelium that's attacking these trees that are you know, alive on underneath the ground, but pretty much dead above ground. So they have this battle between the my, mycelium and fungus is trying to do its job by killing off the tree and decomposing the roots and stuff. So the tree doesn't have the strength to fight off the fungus. So there's this fruiting action that goes on with the tree unable to fight off the fungus, trying to trying to decompose the rest of the, the tree underneath the ground. And they can grow really prolifically. You know, that's kind of the time of year when we have the most availability that we're getting so many mushrooms. This is usually happening in May and June out here on the West that we cannot distribute and sell all these mushrooms fresh. So that gives us an opportunity that time of year to dehydrate them or freeze them. And I think that's, you know, in the US, maybe a little underappreciated item is the dried morel because it dries fantastically, you know, and the flavor and texture really holds up when you rehydrate them. You know, over in Europe, especially in France, in certain regions of France, they eat morels almost every week. You know, it's just really a traditional staple for a weekend dinner of, you know, their, their chicken, roasted chicken with a morel sauce. And there's households that eat that 
year round every week. So we're sending lots of dried morels over to Europe to supplement there. I do not use and do not buy dried morels as much as I should. And you talking about it right now is making me want to order some to to work with at home. What's the best way to rehydrate them and, and to use them in the kitchen? For me, I love using dried morels. Put them in warm water for about 20 minutes, pat them dry with a towel, and they're ready to saute, roast, whatever you're doing with them. A lot of people preserve that liquid that they concentrate or rehydrate their morels and and use that morale in the cooking of whatever you're using that day. All right, you got me sold. If all I have to do is rehydrate them for 20 minutes and pat them dry, I'm I'm, I'm actually going to do something with them this weekend. You know, the dried are great, you know, for year round, but when you purchase fresh morels, what's the best way to store them? Yeah, so morels uh, like to have some airflow. So I would never put them inside of a plastic bag. You're really going to lose shelf shelf life on them. So I would keep them in a paper bag in your refrigerator. That would work pretty well versus a, a plastic bag. And how long will they last in your fridge? A weekend. Use them up within a couple of days of getting them. Foods in season is such an interesting business in that so much of your working with is wild foraged products. These are not items that are coming out of a food production facility. These are items that are so dependent on you know mother nature. How do you get so many morels that you can supply you know a, a good number of the restaurants in the United States? And um, obviously, there's a lot of export of morels from you know the Pacific Northwest to Europe. Who are the people who are going out and finding them? And is it, you know, is it almost like people who come into the region for a, you know, a couple of weeks and then they find And how much do they find in a day? I'm so curious about all that. Yeah. So the people that are out there getting the morels for us, they're more or less professional mushroom pickers that kind of do it year round. So they'll do morels in the spring. The morels really grow out into some really remote areas, small towns, small outposts. We have a dedicated picking force that kind of knows, you know, where to be and when, you know, we'll just hop around to different parts of the Northwest, uh, depending on what time of year, temperatures, uh, what kind of weather we're having, you know, a good mushroom forager out here on the West Coast, uh, when it's really gr growing good in the, let's say in June, they can pick 30, 40, 50 pounds of morels in a day. We kind of work together, you know, we want to get them a good price, you know, they're putting money in their pockets, but at the same time, we want to be able to sell all of them as well. So there's this fine balance of like, it's almost like the stock market, you know, the buying and selling and the prices yeah. up and down, you know, one week, the prices might be $10 a pound higher than they were the previous week or $15 lower. And it just kind of ebbs and flows every day with the, with the volume of the commodities. Is that all wild mushrooms that are it's, foraged? It's all the wild mushrooms, which, yeah. which is unique. So, uh, you know, we'll do morels for four or five months. And then we got a prolific uh, chanterelle harvest for six months. And then we got all these little, you know, we'd probably do around 20 or 30 wild mushrooms that grow out here in the Northwest, um, Matsutakis, you know, and they each have their own little niches, you know, whether we're sending stuff to New York or Japan or over to Amsterdam. So 
everyone kind of has their like affinity for these different species of mushroom around the world. So our job is kind of trying to line these people up with the the fungus coming out of the Northwest. So cool. Do you feel that wild mushrooms are becoming more popular, you know, over the last few years, or is it the same as it was the last 10, 20 years? I think over the last few years, it's about the same. I would say maybe in the restaurant world, it's, it's about the same, but maybe at the retail level, mm-hmm. we're seeing consumers more interested in them. You know, they've been seen wild mushrooms, morels on menus, you know, for years. So then now people are seeing them at the grocery store and they're like, okay, well, I know what these are because, you know, seeing them at, you know, my favorite restaurant. So, you know, at the retail level, I think it's gaining more traction. Yeah, that, that I think is something that's really quite fascinating. Uh, I remember talking years ago to a very famous French chef in New York named Andre Soltner. And he had a restaurant called Lutes, which was the hottest of the hot spots mm-hmm. um, in New York City for many years. And he would talk about when he came to the United States, you know, he had this long tradition of cooking in France. And he said they used to use canned chanterelles. They'd be lucky if they could find somebody selling dried morels in, this, in the U.S. Same thing with porcini, if they were going to use, you know, porcini or saps. And then he, you know, somebody finally made the discovery that, wait, the United States actually has wild mushrooms. And not only do they have some, you know, I've heard over time that the Pacific Northwest is actually one of the largest production of wild mushrooms, you know, fresh in the world. So it's really interesting that it took us a while. Buying dried morels from us probably for, I don't know, 20 years. Yeah. In our computer system, it's not even called Chef's Warehouse, it's Dairyland. It's still Dairyland, yeah. (laughs) So I don't know when that, you know, we've been going with you guys for like 20 years. So um, all the dried morels and you guys have been been great to work with and, and glad to see, you know, you guys growing. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Ingredient Insiders. Follow us on Instagram at Ingredient Insiders. You can find the products discussed in today's episode on chefswarehouse.com.